You're listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. I always think one of the main missions of The Voice of Insurance is to give you access to industry leaders so that you can find out how they think and what they think about the big issues of the day. These are people you've almost certainly heard of, but not necessarily heard from. But there's a second mission, which is to introduce you to people who you almost certainly don't know, but who I think have got some very interesting things to say. In my line of work, I get to meet lots of fascinating and very talented people, and it's nice to be able to introduce some of the less well-known ones to you. Today's guest is one of these. We've heard an awful lot about the insurtech phenomenon over the last four years. A whole industry has grown up around it. Frankly, some of it has been very poorly explained and executed. Stephen Britton's job is to provide a link between the insurance folk and the tech people who often seem to inhabit completely different planets. I always enjoy talking to Stephen because he's incredibly smart and is buzzing with big and challenging ideas. The conversation always takes an unexpected turn or two. But unlike so many bright sparks, he's really good at explaining himself to people less intelligent than he is. So if you're not a techie, here is someone I can highly recommend you listen to. I'm pretty sure it will make you think differently about insurance. And if it does that, that's another one of my missions complete. Let's get on with the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you could be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. Well, Stephen, why don't you tell us very briefly about InsureTech Gateway, who you are and what you do. Thank you, Mark. Well, the the InsureTech Gateway is an innovation capability to some, a venture capital firm to others, and an incubator to founders. We live outside of the everyday world of the insurance market, and um, we've been running for four years. And we really started it because my co-founders and I, we looked at the insurance market and thought that it was ripe for disruption, but we thought it was going to take 20 years to happen. The change that we'd seen happen in five, 10 years in other sectors We just couldn't see it happening. And fundamentally, the problem was that it was just so unappealing to fresh blood, to new tech founders. And we thought that we'd try to solve that problem. And I guess a quick, I'll try to simply overview that. We, um, so when you start off with a brief, how do we make insurance appealing to the most fantastic transformational minds in the world? You think, right, well, we've got three pots to work to here. We've got to find a way of attracting them in the first place, because most of them are greatly discouraged by the market and what they've seen far easier places for them to uh, make things happen. The capabilities are so hard to come by. 
the accessing the market, the resources, the funding, it's a complete nightmare. And not many people were collaborating with insurance outside of the market itself. Insurers collaborate with themselves, with reinsurers. It's quite a tight market. And markets that are changing quickly are collaborating much faster with tech companies, with parallel sectors. So we thought that we needed to find a way that we could more readily bring them all together. I guess in, if I try to piece that into something, back to my opening question, the Gateway is a place where fantastic tech founders could enter the market, can prove a violently interesting and transformative idea, show the insurance market that it's safe and, and it's de-risked and it can work, and um, can surround themselves with other people trying to solve similar or interesting challenges and, and succeed. That's the gateway. And with the gateway, you've got a regulated platform, haven't you? So you've actually solving a lot of that problem for those founders. Yes, exactly. The, the real nuts and bolts of it, we started by getting FCA authorization. And that was the starting point to, I guess, what really defined the gateway, the access point. We were able to delegate that authorization to founders to conduct small experiments, not to go big and go large. It was more Let's create a protected environment where they can be live and iterate and test in market. And from there, we've built out a suite of further capabilities, a platform, let's call it for another term, where we give them funding, we give them protection to test their ideas, to get the right metrics to measure, to understand what risk looks like, what the insurers are looking for. And that platform has grown now into something that is can now serve what we've now done is 14 businesses to market across a whole variety of areas from flood to helping freelancers insure themselves. And you could imagine that that's had to be quite an adaptable capability set. What are the opportunities that you're seeing and which of the ones are you getting most excited about? So obviously you got excited about at least 14. I'd have to say we get excited about a lot of them. We saw 600 to find the 14. It's interesting you say the opportunities, we get excited by founders. We get really excited by their passion and what new things they can bring. I think in the, um, in the very first days, what drives us is this sense of new possibilities that a great founder can walk in the door with. What excites us are some of the people who have come out of the insurance market with an openness to experiment too and to help us. What excites us is that we're only on step one of a five, 10-year journey. I mean, we're really only seeing the beginning of this. I can't say today that there is a single business that's come in the door and said, yep, that's the future. It just hasn't come yet. And um, I guess more than anything, I'm excited that we've created a destination where the unexpected will walk in the door. That is the most exciting thing about what we're doing right now. Behind your question, I guess, was a more, um, so tell me something fabulous that's just walked in the door then. Why not? Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. (laughs) That would be exciting. Um, I guess the variety of our week. So we're having conversations with the future of the connected car. I say the connected car as if it's here already. The future of um, motor insurance is fascinating where the conversation has shifted so quickly in our environment. One from can we make drivers more responsible or can we select or remove fraud, which was day one's challenge, through to what happens when cars drive themselves. And how do we build that into our tech stack today? Because we're going to be leading that charge. And in three or four years time, we're going to have to be live with something for an autonomous connected car. That's quite exciting because we're having to visualize and imagine a world that's not here yet. And I think one of the most interesting things that happen every day for us is the way that the new digital economy is presenting itself to us. And I mean, we talk about the freelance economy and we talk about e-commerce and some of these interesting challenges. But for me, what they are is a change in business and society. So uh, last week, we've been talking about digital assets. 
five years ago, this was people investing in blockchain. And now we're talking about creating the first insured hot wallets online for people to protect their cryptocurrency. But what they're really saying to us is, what was the Wild West of digital? What was this new uncontrollable economy is now getting smart and getting sensible and becoming a bona fide professional marketplace that the likes of the big banks are now stepping in and saying, well, we're going to do crypto bank accounts and we're going to need an insurance product or a guarantee to make that happen. And that the role of insurance is one of at the frontier of these spaces where they are becoming from cowboy to milky bar kid. They are becoming, you know, the new sheriffs or whatever the, the analogy is. But it's so interesting that the technologists who walk in our door are saying, I think with your help, we could professionalize this Wild West. And I think that's opened our eyes to the future of InsureTech being the market maker. So I'm particularly excited about that. I'm, another topic we've talked about before, Mark, around mitigation and prevention is this growing trend of founders coming to us with big data understanding, analytics, predictive models. And they look at the insurance market with amusement almost today and wonder why insurance is a solution to a problem that could be prevented in the first place. How can we possibly cover some of these risks that are so complex when actually the solution is in preventing them, predicting them, preventing them, informing the customer, educating the customer, visualizing the problem for them so they can better manage it themselves, transferring their risks in a different way because they know how. This is an entirely new language and lexicon that these digital founders are speaking about on a daily basis as if it's today, not tomorrow. Does this actually mean that you need a whole new model of insurance to implant this kind of thing? I don't know the house where if you install £10,000 or $10,000 worth of stuff, you know that you'll probably never have a fire again. And yet, of course, if you have a fire, it may be $50,000, but it may only happen once every 100 years. So the insurance company is actually set up for paying the one in 100, one in 1,000 year fire and actually has no incentive to help subsidize the £10,000 today that needs to be paid to stop you ever having firing again, of course. And then they'll insure you under the current model, they'll insure you for two or $300. That would be disruption, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So how are we going to sort of implant that mitigation in, into insurance? Is that where you come in? Absolutely. Well, in simple terms, I think we have to, we have to start with a customer, with a consumer, with, with a client, and we need to instill a new value exchange between insurer and customer or risk taker and customer. Because if a customer understands that they can mitigate and it's in their interest, and then maybe the first engagement is one of prevention, maybe the proposition is a prevention proposition. Maybe we say, aren't we all interested in you not losing your house, in your example? Aren't we all interested in you not losing your things? Why don't we solve this together? We hear this all the time now in cyber and more complicated spaces where Really, the solution is in the stopping the problem in the first place. The security project first that says, um, let's take these mitigated measures and then we'll, we'll understand what risk is left. Your question also asks, well, whose responsibility is to install that? I think we're looking at new propositions, new brands that will come to market that are a combination of prevention and insurance, where we create a new dialogue, which isn't the um, just fit me and forget me for 12 months, the 12-month insurance policy. If you want this to be affordable, if you genuinely want to sustain your current business or your current lifestyle, then we're going to have to work on this together. Do you think it might mean we'll have products that are really long-term or sort of permanent? 
Because if you've got a model where you, you charge someone $500 for expecting a $50,000 loss, but you know that there's $10,000 worth of remediation would help a huge amount and make you probably, you know, that, that $50,000 loss become incredibly remote to the point of you buy a factor of 100 or something. But the problem is that you can only give them $100 discount for having spent $10,000. And so you, it takes them forever to amortize the difference between their investment in better security. So would the answer be to have really, really long-term insurance? Do away with that whole annual thing and say, right, I'm your insurer forever or for the life of this house. Would it be revolutionary that way? Well, it's certainly very appealing to have an infinite relationship or a lifelong relationship. Let me talk more about real examples that we see today, because I think they maybe show the breadcrumbs of where this is going from today. You're aware of Flood Flash, which is a, I mean, I would say is a great example of a proposition, which is part prevention or mitigation and part insurance. And the customer installs a device in their property. And that device enables Flood Flash to instantly respond and pay out that one in a hundred year event. But also with that comes a contract of regular update with the customer, a warning system. And it says, beware, flood is coming. In the next two days, you're going to see a meter of rainfall. You should really prepare yourself. But also on installation, there's a there's a very interesting conversation that happens where instead of saying, um, you live here, therefore this is your flood price, we can walk the device into the building and we can say to the policyholder in, in old language, we could say, how much do you want to cover? How, how lucky do you feel? Do we put this a meter off the ground, three meters off the ground? In that very moment, there is a sharing of responsibility. There is a moment there where the customer says, well, actually, if I move the very valuable objects upstairs, if I maybe shift the way I was thinking about installing the electricity, the real costs I've got to cover are maybe only a tenth, a hundredth of a very large flood policy. And what I'm really after is a continuity insurance, something that gets me up and running in, in five, six weeks if I do have a big flood problem and isn't devastating to my business. So the risk is defined differently. The responsibility is shared differently. The contract is entirely different and therefore the price is different. It's relatively much cheaper. Um, How do you, with that, um, that's a parametric solution. It's a sort of, you know, the device says, have I got wet or have I not got wet? And how presumably can it, it will say how much it's got wet, whether it's got sort of half wet or fully wet or whatever, and it'll pay out based on that. Parametrics are usually quite sophisticated. And I suppose, you know, they've come at the very high end of insurance at catastrophe bond level for hurricanes and earthquakes and other things. Now that you're dealing with a, a less sophisticated consumer, how can you prove that you're really treating them fairly when you sort of said you want one meter or three meters? Because we all know that the difference in one meter and three is probably a thousand years of return period. You know, it's an exponential difference between one and three. Today, if you had a sort of regulatory pushback around that, explaining that the difference to the customer so that they don't take on all that basis risk of having a flood and not getting paid. I can't speak to the regulatory, this shaping regulatory space. We'd really need to bring the founders in who are, yeah. who are knee deep in this. I think the transparency of the instant payout, I think it's very clear that the product is responding to the immediate needs of the business, which is continuity in a bind. Imagine a real business, you're a restaurant by a river and you're out of business for six, seven weeks while you're waiting for the floods to disperse and you can sort things out. That is a problem we solve. We're just going to keep, you get the money and you get it fast. And I guess that's a very transparent and open relationship. And I can't see why anybody, any regulator would want to stop businesses getting back up and running. But there was a second part to your question, which was um, around amortization of these devices, you know, and that is also a blocker here. 
And the interesting thing is that, I mean, not all spaces lend themselves to the setup costs of something like FloodFlash. And FloodFlash is one of many businesses that have come to us over the last few years with a, you know, we need to install a device. And they battled for a year to get that device cost down from industrial flood sensors that are £10,000 a unit to something they could, at a unit cost, get around the sort of sub 50 quid mark. And not only could they do that, they could bolt it to the wall. And with that, they could present a business case in the early stages of a six, seven, eight year lifetime value. So there is a model that made the grade on the amortization challenge. For 50 quid, we can put it in a house and for eight years, they'll stay here. And this is the economics and it's profitable and it's valuable. So we saw a a value exchange that worked for all parties. And I think that is in that are the ingredients for a parametric risk transfer and the new relationship that I referred to before. We're learning a lot from their endeavors and the endeavors of groups like Earthscope in Wildfire and Jumpstart in Earthquake, who are looking at similar installation or data acquisition challenges that they need to amortize over time. We've had COVID and obviously we're talking about businesses and business interruption. That's been the biggest theme of COVID. Do you think that COVID is going to be a big opportunity for something parametric on the pandemic side? Well, it's much talked about, as you can imagine. And um, in the Zoom chats, of InsureTech. The COVID conversation was the first month and then lockdown was the second amongst conversations around video conferencing and isn't it great or isn't it bad. But I think the phenomena that has been most interesting from where I'm sitting is a new recognition of our ability, of of our need to prevent oversolve. And that, that example I gave of flood flash and that conversation about responsibility at the very beginning of like, well, where are you going to put stuff versus where are we going to put this device? But where are we going to put this trigger? versus what is your responsibility as a policyholder. I've seen that played out in every channel available where we're being told to stay home to stay safe. If you want to protect yourself and your family, not buy this insurance product, it's stay home. So I think it absolutely, the COVID COVID challenge has um, accelerated society's understanding and brought home the need for us to take responsibility and behave differently and not turn to an industry like insurance and say, how much would it cost to cover me? So for example, with things like driving, you're going to be much more stay home, stay safe from COVID-19, but you'll get a message from your insurer to say, stop accelerating quite so hard to stay safe when you're driving and we'll probably charge you less premium, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yes. And don't break so hard or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And that that sounds a little policey. And I think we're all trying to steer away from the big brother intervention. But I think it's much more of, a, of an open understanding that the reason things are expensive is because they're risky. And that what we're trying to do is come up with a fair solution here. If you want to take risks, then you pay. What about the other societal change that's come about with COVID or remote working and other things? Do you think that's completely played into the hands culturally of InsureTech? In the wider societal sense, are you rubbing your hands with glee that we've accelerated your 20-year horizon that you were talking about at the beginning because of what's happened? I guess maybe the answer is not yet. I'm not rubbing my hands yet. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm just hopeful. I'm hopeful that culturally, the market's attitude to novelty and newness and prog- progress and technology is seen now as maybe is going to be a solution and a positive disruption is around the corner and that we should be less afraid of it because when we really need it, technology steps up and really solves problems. So, but I think that we just need to get over this, this shock moment I mean, I think that the industry, society, business in general is still in shock. It's trying to work out what's next. 
but I think we will return. I hope we will return with a greater humility to um, that we need to remember to reinvent ourselves and stay agile. This is a, this does feel like a time where, um, so yeah, what, how do I feel smug? I feel smug. Um, <laughs> why do I feel smug today? <laughs> now I'm, I'm excited to work with, a, to have drawn together a community of very agile thinkers and makers at a time when clearly we're all looking for positive innovation, positive disruption. And I'm seeing that on a daily basis in businesses that were ahead of their time on being able to have remote workers and developers all over the world. They were ahead of their time on usage-based models that were people will understand, try and understand, why do I need usage-based car insurance? I drive the same every year. And then suddenly they weren't. And that they were ahead on their time on trying to set up a new conversation about prevention when everybody said, well, no one wants to talk to insurers about, you know, no one wants a conversation with their insurer. They want you to disappear in 10 seconds. And the best insurer is the invisible insurer. And I believe that the portfolio and the people that we work with were well ahead of their time in establishing really interesting dialogues where they're getting trust pilot scores that meant that customers were sending them notes and wanting to find out what they were doing next. The value of that now and what we're going to try and do next is going to be phenomenal. We were discussing about loss prevention and mitigation. And I was wanting to ask you about mutuals and mutuality. In fact, the history of mutuals, for example, one of the most famous ones and most successful would be Factory Mutual, really founded because a founder did learn a lot about steam boilers and how they explode and worked out how to stop them exploding and didn't get any discount from their standard insurer on the basis of that and got miffed and went off and started a factory mutual with other factory owners who'd done similar things. And obviously, you know, 150 years later, it's still going strong. But recently, we've also, within InsureTech, I've noticed a sort of rediscovery of the virtues of mutuality and insurance. Some InsureTechs are really going for this. Do you think this is going to be something that will will work, mutuality, where perhaps the InsureTech is working very transparently for a fee or something? Is it coming? Absolutely. I think there's been, there are so many indicators that this is going to be the way forward. I guess maybe why hasn't it happened yet? It's a frustrating thing for me because we can definitely identify target and aggregate risk in groups. You know, we've seen a number of startups in techs who have been very successful at accumulating those groups online through social media by identifying, by grasping communities This new term, digital communities, is a wonderful thing for us to start with. And our ability to then work with those communities and understand them better and create risk pools, that is coming together. The phase of then industrializing that at a digital systems level, oh, it's coming, isn't it? And it's going to be so exciting. Over the last couple of months, we've met groups who are looking at aggregating Amazon sellers to aggregating social media influencers to, you know, we've seen the original bought by many idea of aggregating Facebook groups around interests. That side of things, I think, is way ahead of the game. But it's our ability to create these kind of dynamic risk transfer models. What is it going to be? A cloud-based solution that everything can be integrated. It's just going to require a few. It's probably going to require us putting a room together and inviting all those characters and giving them enough time to put together the Uber solution. So I think that the constituent parts are out there. I'd love to say that it'll happen in the gateway. So um, perhaps we should perhaps we should transmit your podcast to a, an audience outside of insurance into the cloud data audience, into the um, social media aggregator audiences and make this an invitation to them because it's going to be a consolidation of those expertise in the next five years. If it's not there, we should just stop what we're doing and start it, Mark. 
you mentioned about disruption right at the beginning. And I suppose probably four or five years ago, we were talking about disruption a lot. But now a business that really is disruptive, a business like Tesla is now openly seeking to enter insurance and has completely broken cover. Do you think this moment is really happening? Well, you can understand why Tesla would want to do it now of anybody, because I guess their big story has been around autonomous vehicles. Should I say their next frontier is the autonomous car, the self-driving car. So at some point or another, they're going to find themselves culpable for the accident when they become the driver. So a smart man like Elon Musk will be thinking, I better understand insurance or what it means to my business because it might be our downfall because we're about to have 100,000 driver policies in our AI system. So I I can understand why they'd want to bring this thinking in-house and integrate it. As to the short-term roadmap to get there, Tesla is is lauded as an interesting partner to work with. By Miles launched a connected car policy with them this year on their ability just to get so much data out of the car that they can anticipate more fairly price. But there's a gap in the middle there between where we are today and all those characters now being, I talk about them all being in the room again, them all now being in the room for the next three years while they potentially work on that next bit together, which is how do we insure ourselves? And if we can, how do we use all the opportunities we have through a customer dialogue to prevent accidents before they happen? I mean, surely the opportunity here in the interim is that a Tesla driver is a better driver because they're informed that they can reduce the risk, that they can provide a better price to their customer than an external insurer. And when you have that kind of data set and it's dynamic and it's learning, you'd be in a much better position to quantify the risk and place it yourselves than go to a traditional insurance market and try to educate them for the next two years to catch up with you. It seems like the future, the more, the more that a company like Tesla can understand its own risk, the more they can manage and place it. Presumably, they're also going to have to have reinsurance and have things for catastrophic failure and for things that they don't understand and unknown unknowns and all that other stuff. Yes, be able to make a very good submission to reinsurers, I presume. They make a very good submission to reinsurers, exactly. And I mean, it's interesting for us, our backers are from reinsurance. And the reinsurers understand that there's going to be this new wave of, I guess, self-diagnosers where big data is going to define risk and is going to create a new group of self-insured who will want to come to them directly and look for protection for that that one in 10,000 event. We mentioned Tesla, that which is a pinup of technology. And in fact, and I suppose part of its great advantage is it's become a public company with an astronomically wonderful valuation, which exceeds far exceeds many insurance companies. In fact, most other motor manufacturers indeed. So it's got the capital to start an insurance company if it wants to, because it's got a loyal fan base in, in on the stock market willing to fund the business. Now, the first proper global pinup of InsurTech has been Lemonade in the States. And it's just had an IPO, a very sort of Tesla-like moment, it seems a roaring success and it's trading on multiples that incumbent insurers could only dream of. So do you think in the light of that, is that actually one of the most disruptive things we've seen out of InsurTech, that IPO, the fact that an insurance company can be worth six times book? Well, I guess it it sounds more like a tech story than an insurance story, doesn't it? It sounds like the kind of numbers that we thought weren't allowed in insurance, that we're far too sensible to consider a tech valuation. But tech valuations themselves have been They've been based on measures and and reasonable measures of understanding the value of building long-term customer relationships. They were always based on, you know, that you take a a Spotify or a WhatsApp valuation. It was, we have the customers. We haven't worked out how to monetize them yet. But when you've got this much trust, when you are embedded in the customer's lives as we are, it becomes a dot, dot, dot. Imagine all the, um, the further services that we can offer them. 
when you have this much trust and you create this kind of relationship. So, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a, a room 101 on external thinking around building brands, building customer relationships and reframing the customer relationship in a way that can go beyond the way that insurance currently talks about itself. I get Lemonade. I get its value. But I totally under, I mean, when I speak to friends in the insurance market, they look, they, they think that we've all been drinking the Kool-Aid. But um, a business like that has been granted the time to further its deep understanding about how to build relationships. It's been given the opportunity to scale itself in terms of long-term customer relationships. That's what it's been given. It hasn't come to the market and said, we've just cracked the underwriting model or we've cracked the tech. It says we've cracked how to, or we're certainly on the way to cracking the relationship between insurance and customer. It's kind of nice that it's in one place to make some things happen quickly. I mean, as much as I like working with a group of startups, when you can put that much expertise into one building, into group, or should I say into one um, video conferencing suite now in our modern post-COVID world, it's kind of nice that there is a center of excellence that is leading the charge on relationship. So I think we, we're going to enjoy the lessons from Lemonade going forward. There'll be learnings that will proliferate across the industry after this. So that is why people are following it, because we will learn a lot from that center of excellence on relationships. How should incumbent insurers and brokers, how can they get the best out of this insurtech phenomenon, which we now know is it's here to stay? How can they get the best out of it if they still haven't felt that they've engaged with it yet or they don't understand it? They probably understand now that if they hadn't understood before, they really know that they do need to engage. I mean, obviously, I'm biased because half of what the gateway does is work with startup founders and try to de-risk their models. And half of them is to build partnerships and collaborations with the insurance market. And I guess behind that is a recognition that change takes time. Big organizations who have already scaled to an industrial level at one method of manufacture to ask them to pivot their businesses to another, it takes time. So certainly in the gateway, our solutions to date, and this is an, an evolving model, is to, I guess, start with demonstrating or, or showing them, showing our insurance partners, which in most cases, there are, they are investors in our funds. That's our mechanism. But that's a great way for them to start. It says, come in and observe, invest and observe. Start to understand the market that's going to be opening up, market conditions that are changing and new lines that are appearing, as we've discussed already. Watch them, get to meet founders, get to see the kind of phenomena at play here, the changing risk market that is emerging from this, the new advantage in this new digital risk market, so that you can consider your own development, so that you can consider how you integrate with that space. You can consider your own digital underwriting capability. So we certainly think this is a five-year journey for most insurers, a journey that starts with a very structured way of seeing the market and understanding it, a structured way of turning that into collaborations that they can participate, whether they very simply give underwriting paper, they make an introduction to a new market or a partner they work with. They just help us get things moving and get these businesses up and running all the time learning to a point where we're building, hopefully they'll be building their own capabilities so that at some point there'll be this wonderful integration point, a fusion between the new world and their world. And as we just discussed around Tesla, Working with reinsurers, there is clearly going to a point in time when they are going to need to connect with groups like Tesla, who are working at their own risks. And hopefully some of our portfolio companies too will be a significant scale where they're presenting very interesting, granular, dynamic 
risk books that the reinsurer can connect with and can benefit from bringing their core skills to, to the table. This is a five-year engagement for those that are seizing the opportunity and a 20-year story of watching and struggling for those that don't. And I absolutely believe that those that grasp this in the next five years will be the leaders in the market, as has been shown in every other sector. Start today, learn today, work out how to collaborate today, and then work out how to build yourselves together with this new future. Actually, one last thing, less serious question, Stephen. You mentioned earlier about um, the word policyholder sounded a bit obsolete. So it'd be fun to see what, <laughs> what word can we come up with that would be, we can have the first reference to the future Oxford English Dictionary would say, well, this word was first coined on voice of insurance. So what would be the insurtech future in 30 years' time, what word will we have instead of policyholder in the insurance industry? I like to play the word the other way around, if I may, because the word I've, I've wanted to get rid of for a while is my insurer. I think that's the first word to break, because I, um, I can't tell you how tricky it is to walk into a room full of very bright digital innovators and say I'm from insurance. What I'd like to say is uh, I think you should be part of a new world of protection and all the things you've ever dreamed of doing to be disruptive in a market. What if you could protect society, you could protect businesses and you could protect communities? So if I had to um, put a word into the sin bin, it is the word insurance and all the connotations that come with it because it does not slow things down. And I think if we remembered back to your point about mutuals and why they started, it was so that the many could protect the few. And I think it really resonates today with a new fresh blood, the creativity, the ideas that the idea of protecting each other and ourselves has never been more apparent. So um, I haven't quite answered your question, but I like the idea of protectors. Who's your protector? Oh, I like the sound of it. Sounds really, really good. Protect, yeah. I mean, it, as long as it doesn't sound like I look after your car, mister. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, thanks so much for giving me your time. You're being incredibly busy and more busy than usual, one would imagine. So thanks so much for giving me the time of day and spending some of it on The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. I've enjoyed it. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, big thanks to today's supporter, Claims Direct Access. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.